When I would talk to my clients and we'd say, what do you really need when you're performing? They would say, it's actually beyond confidence. I need this unshakable belief in myself mm -hmm. that I'm going to find a way. And actually great humility requires great confidence. It takes confidence to have someone say, I, I need to get better. I need help. Mm -hmm. And it takes arrogance when the lights are on and things aren't going the right way to have this unshakable belief that you're going to find a way. How do we truly feel like a success in every area of our lives? How do we feel enough and know that we are not alone? Join me as I interview some of the top leaders and experts in the world, from Broadway directors to multimillionaire CEOs, neuroscientists, and more, to look behind the curtain of success and examine not only the achievements, but also the fears, the doubts, the loneliness, and how we can navigate through that to create the incredible life we actually want to live. Welcome to Success Engineering. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Success Engineering. I'm your host, Michael Bauman. I hope you guys enjoyed this last episode where we covered everything from, you know, John Coyle, Olympic silver medalist, about how we can actually slow down time in our life. He's an expert on chronoception, very fascinating episode, to some personal insights that I have on how we can really dive deep and uncover what deep success means in our life and start these questions, start rattling these questions around in our brain to see if we can actually create a life that we want to live. And then following that up with how we can overcome our limiting beliefs in our life and the incredible work done by Sherzad Shamin and Positive Intelligence and how we can use that framework to overcome limiting beliefs and do the, do the work necessary for that. And then finishing up with an incredibly fascinating conversation with John Helliwell, the editor of the World Happiness Report, which ranks different countries based on their life evaluations, their happiness, and then also the six main things that correlate 75% of the happiness on these scales. Super, super interesting. So check that out. So this month for September, it's all about the mind. So we're going to have experts on productivity and how we can optimize it. We're going to have elite sports psychologists and looking at what is an elite performance mindset and how does that differ in performance and preparation. And then we'll have, you know, somebody who even spent six months in one of the most violent prisons in the UK, transformed it from the inside out and the incredible power that he had in his mindset going into that. It's just unbelievable story. So tons of really fun guests laid out for you. All right, let's jump into the show. I have the privilege of having Brian Levinson on. He's an executive and mental performance coach. He's worked with everyone from CEOs, professional athletes, teams like the NBA, the NHL, the MLS, Division One athletic departments, Federal Reserve. I mean, the list goes on and on. He's done a lot of really cool things, coached a lot of incredible people. He's also the podcast host of Intentional Performers, where he interviews a diverse group of elite high performers and the author of Shift Your Mind. And we're going to get into that because some of the information in that is fantastic around peak performance mindset. So welcome to the show here. Privileged to have you. Thanks for having me, Michael. Absolutely. So I want to start with you feeling lost, selling ice cream and candy and Julie, <laughs> and then you take yeah. it away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you think of like a watershed moment in your life. I'll get to Julie in a second. But when I think of my career and the intersections that I've been on, there's definitely a watershed moment in there. And I graduated from college, a lost puppy. I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living. I studied sociology and African-American studies. 
maybe if I graduated in 2022, that would be more relevant. I feel like it's more value today than it was when I graduated, but I just studied classes that I was interested in. And as a result, when I graduated, I raised my hand and said, who wanted to hire me? And no one really grabbed my hand and said, here, come with me, son. So I, I worked in sales for a few years and I landed at a company, a local Washington DC company where I sold ice cream and candy uh, wholesale. So I would go to restaurants, grocery stores, country clubs, hotels, and I would have ice cream in the trunk of my car in a freezer and I'd walk out and try to get them to sample the goods. And if they sample the goods, they usually would want to buy it. People like ice cream, even though I didn't like ice cream as a oh, side note. I was going to ask how many times did you sample the goods? Yeah, I guess. My, everyone says I'm weird. I don't like chocolate. I've never liked chocolate. My kids really think I'm weird because I don't like chocolate. But so I ended up working for that company <laughs> and I sort of got to a crossroads in my career where I knew like, all right, this ice cream sales thing is probably not what I'm going to do forever. And so I started interviewing for other sales jobs and I found that I was BSing my way through those interview processes. And so back to Julie, who you mentioned, when I graduated as a lost puppy out of college, I just started calling people and saying, Hey, would you meet with me? And Julie was a family friend. So she actually reached out to me and said, Brian, I want to take you out to lunch and tell you about what I do. I think you'd find it interesting. I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. So we went to the Cheesecake Factory. If you've ever been to a Cheesecake Factory, they give you way too much food. So I was it's happy. lovely. <laughs> yeah, as a 22-year-old, that's gold. And so I remember just sitting with her at the Cheesecake Factory and she asked me to close my eyes. And she said, if I asked you to like tell me what's going on in this room, would you be able to share? I was like, yeah, I could probably share a lot. She said, yeah, I've always thought that you're very perceptive. And there are times in your life where you feel like someone sees you. That was one of those times. And as someone who was pretty lost, I would even say personally and professionally, I felt a little bit found in that moment. And uh, she told me about what she did. So she basically worked in sports psychology. She worked with some of the best athletes in the world. And I always loved sports. I like a lot of people, but I also loved helping people. And so I was really drawn to the psychology side of sport and the sports side of psychology. But at the time I'd been in school my whole life. I wanted to work and I wanted to earn a living. So even though we met pretty early on after I graduated, I didn't do anything with that conversation until I got to the ice cream company. And when I started to realize, all right, this probably isn't going to work out, I met with her again. She said, hey, why don't you come shadow me? I'm working with a golfer at a country club. Come out and walk nine holes with us. So I did that. I started doing my research on the field. She started to help me look at online courses. I took an online course. And then I said, you know what, let's do it. So I applied to a grad program when I did my master's in sports psychology. And it really set the table for what I'm doing today. But yeah, if it wasn't for that Cheesecake Factory lunch with Julie, I have no idea what I would be doing today. But yeah, I'm really grateful. Julie, we're supposed to have lunch on Monday. So we are we're still very much in touch. And she is absolutely the first mentor in my life, but beyond my family and really grateful for her. That's awesome. That's the story that everybody wants. So the people reach out to you. What I'm curious to just dive into that. Obviously, it's been very formational for you in your life. I'm curious of what role you would say mentors play in just a blanket statement in terms of peak performance. It's huge. I mean, we were talking about Michael Gervais before we started recording. And I think mentors can be people that are not family friends. And so Mike is someone whose podcast I loved. I know his podcast, I listened to one of your podcast. And you said he's one of the three podcasts you listen to me as well. Like I just love his podcast. And so if it wasn't for Mike, I wouldn't have a podcast, which is on year six of me recording. 
So think of Mike as a mentor, even though he doesn't necessarily know that. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. I've spent some time with him. We communicate every once in a while, but you know, he's a mentor. And then there's a few others that are more formal mentors. So there's a guy named Neil Stroll who actually passed away recently. He's more in the executive coaching world. And he was a teacher of mine at Georgetown when I went back to school for executive coaching. And on the first day of class, he said, anyone that wants to connect with me, you're welcome to reach out and we can grab a cup of coffee. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm doing that. I think I might've been the only one in my cohort of 32 people that took him up on that. And that led to, I would go and visit him monthly and we'd talk about what was going on. And honestly, like most of that was him affirming that I was heading in the right direction, which felt really good. And then my uncle Bob is a psychotherapist. And so he's been a mentor ever since I got into psychology. And so I would say like formally, Neil, Bob, and Julie have definitely been influences. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I've learned about mentorship is that a great mentor doesn't just tell you what to do. They also show you what not to do. And I've learned something from all three of those people where they may have made mistakes along the way and they've shared those with me and I've learned from them or they're doing something today and I'm watching it and I'm saying, mm. I don't think that's where I want to be. And so I think we get mentors confused sometimes and thinking that we have to find like Michael Gervais, for example, like the mentor that's the top of our field. And while Mike, I'm sure is a great mentor, I think we can learn just as much from those who are willing to share their struggles or their challenges and they don't have to be top of class, so to speak, even though, by the way, Julie, Bob and Neil are, so I shouldn't say that they're all three really successful. And I know we'll talk about success later, but yeah, I mean, they've been influences, not just in peak performance, but just in how do you run your practice? What do you do? How do you want to set this up for your family? And when I say set up for your family, like to be there for your family. So those are things. And then, my, I mean, my parents have been the ultimate mentors all along the way. And I lean on them all the time. My wife has been a mentor in a lot of ways. So there are formal mentors, there are informal mentors, and then there are people in your life that you just really value that you want to lean on. So when I say you, I would say I, that I want to lean on. Yeah. I think the idea, like, I mean, of mentors is an interesting one. You're essentially looking at like, who are people farther ahead of me, wherever I want to go that I can help, help me in whatever way that looks like. And I think sometimes people get caught up in what you're talking about with the Michael Gervais or like the elite, like, how do I get this person to mentor me? But what I love even is the idea of books. Like I just, I love books, right? You can take for somebody to write a book, you have to distill all of this stuff and take essentially the best of what you have, put it into a format that's digestible. And you can be quote unquote mentored by these people. You can gain access to elite world-class information from books. And then you have a tiers going up to different levels of that. But I really appreciate your thoughts and your insight on the things that you can take away. One more, one more thing on mentors. I really think it's simply experience. And to your point, a book can give you experience. An autobiography definitely can give you all kinds of experience. And so to me, I'm just trying to capture experience that I haven't faced yet or capture as much experience as possible so that I can glean some wisdom from those experiences. Yeah. And I think I might be misquoting this. I think it was Warren Buffett that actually says we all learn from mistakes. They just don't have to be our own. And so it's like, like you're talking about, you can look at these other people and go, oh, well, I'm seeing their mistakes, but I might want to go down a different path, essentially. I love that because I always struggle when someone say, yeah, adversity shapes people. I don't think adversity shapes people. I think learning from adversity shapes people. And so 
I'm big on distinctions because I think our vocabulary and our distinctions help us gain clarity. And so when you talk about that from Warren Buffett, it's like, I once had a friend of mine ask, he's like, I haven't been through anything really hard or anything really difficult. So I feel like in some ways I haven't been able to maximize my learning or my growth. And I'm like, dude, you don't have to go through cancer to Mm -hmm. understand what it's like to overcome cancer and to have the resilience that someone that overcame cancer. Yes, hard things, environments that are tough can help shape us, but I don't want to go through life going toward toxicity or awful things. And I don't want to wait for those things to happen to learn and grow. I want to learn from Warren Buffett's mistakes and not make the same ones. Like, Why should I make that mistake, go through the pain in order to learn? And I don't think we have to go through pain in order to learn. I think pain can expedite our learning and growth, but I don't believe we have to go through the pain. We can see what someone else experienced and say, all right, I'm not doing that again. Like, I don't need to cheat on my wife to know the pain that it's going to cause her or myself if I did. Like, I can experience and observe what other people go through going through a divorce and going through some of the challenges that come with losing trust in a marriage. I don't want to like go experiment with that to know what it feels like to then know that I don't want to cheat on her. Like that seems silly to me. Yeah. And exactly to that point, I remember distinctly, I had a friend who went through a divorce and I remember after the divorce, he said, all the things that used to annoy me about my ex-wife now are the things that I miss. And that's actually like really stuck with me because I look at that now, even with my wife or my kids, the things like my kids get up every day at 6 a.m., right? It's not my favorite thing. But I think about if I, if anything were to happen to them, would I miss that my two-year-old daughter comes into my room at 6 a.m. in the morning? Like, absolutely. Did I have to go through it to learn that? No, but I can, I can learn it from my friend and I can apply it in a deep level to my life. Yeah. Our daughter's been in our bed the last two nights and <laughs> you know, I, it's not really fair because she gravitates to my wife and then my wife doesn't sleep and hurts her neck and all this stuff. But I had that thought go through my head. I was like, gosh, we're not that far away from her never coming in our bed ever again. And So is there a part of me that kind of wants to cherish this moment? There's probably a part of me that does, but I also want my sleep. And so it's interesting though. Like those are, I think it is a metaphor for life in a lot of ways. Like those difficult things we do remember, like we, our memory is drawn to those things and there is nostalgia that comes with, and how can we appreciate it in the moment, but not want it to happen all the time is a interesting perspective as a parent that I experience probably on a daily basis. Yes, I agree to you. <laughs> At every stage, there's lovely things and then there's things that just drive you up a wall. I mean, since we're on that topic, I am curious, what would your definition of success as a parent look like? And I'm also curious is how you have structured your life around the values of your family and the relationships that you have. Yeah, this is to me everything. I was fortunate to have a role model that showed me this. And my dad was very successful by society's standards and benchmarks or whatever you want to call it, but he was home for dinner. And so he was home at like 6.30 every night. We'd have dinner together, then we'd go play, and then he'd help put us to bed. And I say, us, I have two brothers. And so for me, when someone says like, you can't have it all, I saw something different. I saw something different modeled for me. So my norm is that you can strive and work really hard and try to make an impact, 
and be home for dinner. And so success is that for me personally and professionally, they intertwine. It's like, I want to work really hard and I want to be home for dinner as much as I possibly can. And obviously there's times when me and my wife go out or we have go out with friends and leave the kids home, which is also healthy. But yeah, like generally speaking, I want to just be home for dinner. And the pandemic has changed me too, because I used to have an office and I wouldn't leave the office until six o'clock. Like that was it. I was there and sometimes 610. And, but I came home and during the pandemic, like yesterday, I didn't have any clients at 430. And my son came up because I now work from home. I don't work from an office anymore. My son came up at 430 and I was like, here, take a seat and I'll just work. And I'm like, you can hang. It's all good. And so Mm. I've become more agile, more flexible in how I do that. But back to success, I think I also care about professional success and I care about parenting success. So professionally speaking, I really want to do what I love when I want while working with elite clients and earning an elite income, which I've defined for me, it doesn't really matter what others have defined. I do think of income as being a part of success for me. I think it's important for me to earn and to focus on that. It's certainly not the only piece. And then as a parent, I mean, it sounds so cliche. But I remember when my son was born, I said, I really just want him to be the best version of him. And I try to come back to that with both of my kids. I have a daughter as well. Like, I really just want them to be the best version of them. And when I can say that, it opens me up to not put whatever my shit is onto them and not to put any expectations or stress onto them and uh, try to listen and try to be open to what success means for them and be okay with that while imparting some wisdom along the way. Oh, yeah, I think of success as a parent very differently than I do for myself professionally. I, yeah, I really like that. And some of the other things in the research that I did on you too, talk to us about like, even like you talked about like success being holding the space for them to be who, allowing them to become who they are, who they're meant to be, whatever, but also the importance along the way of actually take caring, taking care of ourself as well and how that fits into the equation. Yeah. And as, as I was prepping for your question there, I was thinking in my head, I go, I do this a lot where I, there's a visioning exercise I do with my clients where I have them talk about like, what would a great year look like? So it's July 1st, 2023, and it's been a great year. And I have them describe it. And the first time I did that exercise for myself, what I realized was, I, and you have 90 seconds. Mm. I spent all 90 seconds talking about my professional life. I fill a lot of space with my professional life. I wrote a book. I have a podcast. I have a newsletter. I'm on social media. I have 30 executives that I work with. I work with sports teams. Like, I like to do a lot of stuff. I don't feel overwhelmed by it, but yeah, I fill the space pretty good. And so it didn't, I needed more than 90 seconds, 90 seconds professionally to talk about my work. But what I noticed when I did that was that I didn't have room and space for my family, for myself, for any sort of exploration emotionally, maybe spiritually. And so I need to bring myself back when I often talk about Mm -hmm. success because I had a client once tell me, take care of your marriage first and the kids second. And that really stuck with me when I had kids. Because about a year into our first kid, my wife looked at me and she said, Brian, how are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know, I'm tired. Like I feel like I haven't really done much for myself. She's like, yeah, you haven't done much for yourself. But I think our marriage was pretty good. And I think the kid was pretty good. 
but my wife sort of imparted this wisdom in me. It's like, if I'm not good, then those two things are going to fall apart. And so I think we get it backwards a lot as parents and I'm no different. I think sometimes we take care of the kid first, the marriage second and ourselves third. And I've really focused on trying to reverse that as much as possible. Take care of myself first, take care of the marriage second, take care of the kids third. I think we sometimes overvalue our value in our kids. Like our kids are going to be them. They're going to find their way and they don't need us every step along the way. But we, at least for me, I feel like I need to be involved. And I think especially where we are in society today, like everything's organized for them. Everything's involving adults. And I just had a conversation with my wife the other day. I'm like, we need to give them space to just play and mm. let be kids. And I think it's hard. It's becoming harder and harder to do that. We just have so many options when it comes to organized, structured activities. So back to me, I really try to play golf. I, I exercise. I go on vacation, sometimes with my wife, sometimes not. I really try to take care of myself first. And then my wife and I make sure to go out to dinner together, to go to events, go to experience. And we leave our kids behind. And my wife is so great at this. I mean, a lot of women, especially after they have a kid, early on, they feel attached to their kid. Three months in, I think we left and went skiing. And we left our three-month-old at home. And we're fortunate. We've got, we live by our family. And so we've got support that way. But yeah, I think for me, it's been a game changer. It's like, hey, really focus on your own health. Because if you don't have that, your marriage is going to falter. And then if your marriage is going to falter, then it's going to impact the kids in a way as well. So yeah, I try to work backwards in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll get into this because this applies. I mean, it's one of the principles that you talked about in your Shift Your Mind book. And so we'll run through some of this. And this is very eye-opening for me, even in terms of the research. But one of the things that you talk about is there's different mindset for preparation and performance. And one of the aspects of preparation is what you call selfish. Like you are focusing on improving yourself. And then the aspect of performance is selfless. So you're preparing selfishly so that you can perform well as a father or in whatever role you want to insert for that peak performance. So talk to us about the foundations of the difference between the preparation and the performance and some of those categories that you can see almost a dichotomy between the different sides. Yeah. So this started probably eight years ago, nine years ago. I was working with a golfer and he was a college golfer and we were actually at a Starbucks. I used to go to my clients and meet them where they were. And we were walking through how he prepares. And then I said, all right, well, like, what's your mindset when you perform? And then we literally took a piece of paper and just wrote a list, preparation mind, performance mind. And I was like, my eyes were just wide. I was like, whoa, these are very different. And so what he would work on when he'd work on his golf game what he needed was much more humility. He needed to focus on himself. He needed to really make sure that he was getting into uncomfortable positions and trying to hit balls out of tough positions. And golf is actually hard to get uncomfortable because there's a driving range and the driving range makes things as easy and simple as mm. possible. It's flat. It's on nice grass. It's big and wide. You don't have to necessarily go at a target. So anyway, we had all these things come up and then I started bringing that to the soccer player and the basketball player and the baseball player. We just would do this exercise. And then I started to talk to executives about it. And I was just blown away. I was like, wow, this is not talked about enough. And at the same time, Tom Coughlin, who was the head coach of the New York Giants, had a book come out that said, Earn the Right to Win. And in that book, he talked about being humble enough to prepare and confident enough to perform. And I was like, whoa. I and so I started bringing to my clients like, 
hey, what does humble in preparation look like? And what does confident in performance look like? And it led to this deeper conversation. So that's the backstory of it. And from there, I would just steal what my clients would write down. And we ended up having like 35 of these shifts, so to speak, of preparation and performance. And I was like, I think this could be a book. And so I ended up hiring an editor and a coach and we ended up distilling those 35 down to nine. And I want to be really clear, like they are not the nine shifts. Like (laughs) you can have your own shift and you can disagree with some of the shifts in the book, depending on what you're doing for performance. So Mm. a firefighter is different than an athlete is different than an actor is different than a doctor is different than a lawyer. Like, so I don't claim that these are one size fits all and you can just apply them to anything. However, I do think that the nine that we focused on are the most universal when it comes to preparation and performance. So the one you were mentioning was selfish and selfless. A lot of these words, I think, get a bad rap. So a few that we look down upon are selfish, perfect, arrogant. Like these are words that we often say, don't be arrogant, don't be perfect, don't be selfish. But when I would talk to my clients and we'd say like, what do you really need when you're performing? They would say, it's actually beyond confidence. I need this unshakable belief in myself mm-hmm. that I'm going to find a way. And what we started to get toward is like, that's actually not confidence. I need to be confident all the time. And actually great humility requires great confidence. It takes confidence to have someone say, I, I need to get better. I need help. Mm-hmm. And it takes arrogance to be when the lights are on and things aren't going the right way to have this unshakable belief that you're going to find a way. I think sometimes it's an exaggerated sense of self. It is, it goes against logic. It goes against what the noise of the fans or the audience is thinking. And I, I, when I studied elite performers, I noticed it. And I just started to see it in documentaries and books I would read and podcasts I would listen to. So I went with arrogance. It was a tricky word to put it in a book because we've all had an arrogant jerk and I don't value arrogance all that much. I actually value humility way more. And I think a lot of people are afraid to step into arrogance. I think a lot of the people are afraid to step into selfishness. I think a lot of people are afraid to step into perfectionism because there's a lot there. And if you overdose on any of those, it absolutely is toxic. And by the way, if you're arrogant in preparation, you're not going to learn anything and it's going to hold you back completely. And by the way, if you are perfect in trying to be perfect in performance, it's going to get in the way as well. And by the way, if you're selfish in a performance for a lot of team sports, like that is death as well. So the reason why those words get bad labels is not unjust. They deserve it because if it's used at the wrong time, it absolutely can get in the way of us getting to where we want to go. And so the book is really about when it's really about, it depends when I need to be this way and when I need to be that way. And that's ultimately what I wanted to leave people with is to think about, hey, when do I need to be this way? And when do I need to be that way? And by the way, my authentic self has these sides of me and I need to be intentional and thoughtful about bringing them out at the right time. And so I hope that comes across in the book. That was the intention. But I think people get hijacked when they see those words and sometimes they can't get the message. So hopefully if you're listening to this, you stayed with me for long enough to get the punchline. No, I absolutely love that. Like when I was looking at those things, these are like ideas that have been rattling around in my mind. Like you have these dichotomies and you're like, how can this exist in the same space? And I love that distinction between the preparation and the performance. And like you mentioned, so many elite performance have the ability to switch on 
almost instantaneously, switch off almost instantaneously, and change their state based on what they need to be in the current moment. And I find that so fascinating where your analysis of it says there is space for these different parts of yourself depending on the situation, and then you work on your ability to be able to bring them forward when you need them. I just think it's awesome. Yeah. And we see critics come out when people are arrogant in performance, for example. So the NBA Finals just finished. Draymond Green is someone who is like this. But by the way, so is Stephen Curry. And by the way, so is Clay Thompson. Like You could go through that entire team. And Andrew Wiggins, and I'm a big NBA guy, so if I'm losing people here, but Andrew Wiggins <laughs> was the first pick of the draft. I watched him play in high school. He was supposed to be the next LeBron James. The hype was real with Andrew Wiggins. And one of the things I think he struggled with was he struggled with arrogance and performance until he got to Golden State. And they said, no, dude, like you got the green light. We got mm -hmm. you. Like, go do your thing. Go dunk on people. Go shoot threes. And I think he shifted. A lot of that environment in Golden State helped him shift. Steve Kerr, their head coach, has been open and talked about when he played with Michael Jordan and Steve Kerr has won multiple rings as a player, multiple rings as a coach. He had to shift his mind to get into this arrogant mindset. Steve Kerr has talked about Stephen Curry and how he loves his arrogance. That's the word. But arrogance doesn't have to be outward. It doesn't have to be Draymond Green. It can be inward. Like mm. Andrew Wiggins isn't flexing his muscles. He isn't talking trash. But you watch him play with a swagger that is different than what it was when he came into the league. And that, mm. to me, is key. And by the way, if you just have arrogance all the time, you don't earn it through humble preparation then it's fake and it's false. So if you look at all those guys, they put the work in and they are humble in preparation. They learn and they grow and then they shift into this arrogant performance. So if we're talking about maximizing and really my book was about maximizing potential, it's not a book about being a great human. I actually don't even think it's a book about being a great leader, although some of the shifts would apply to leadership. It really is about maximizing performance. And that's what I studied for the last decade. That's what I was like compelled to write about. And so that to me is so, so important. If you want to try to find a way to perform better, hopefully the book will be helpful. And I think you just need to do a deep dive into yourself and figure out, all right, what's holding me back? The last thing I'll say, my clients in sports, they mostly were college or professional or elite high school athletes who had aspirations of playing at those two levels. They almost always were good on the preparation side. Like if you went through and asked them, where are you on the preparation side? Where are you on performance and score yourself out of 10? They're good at experimenting in preparation, being comfortable with the uncomfortable, analyzing, working, perfectionistic, humble, all these shifts on the preparation side, they're good at. They were hiring me mostly because they would struggle on shifting in the performance side. And the reason they were often struggling was because they were bringing this preparation mind into their performance and it was getting in the way for them. So my job was often to help on that performance side. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I love the distinction that you made there. And I know words are important for you. So you make that distinction of like, this is how you can perform at a peak level. It's not even to be a good person or leadership, because that's what I found too. A lot of times we have this image of success and people that are quote unquote successful, they are very extremely good at a very niche talent. And that does not necessarily mean that their life is good. Their relationship's good. Like there is no correlation there. It might be, but there's a lot of instances where it's not as well. And I like, I actually think what, and this is a potential book idea that I've also often wrestled with. Like 
Mike Gervais talks about the dark side of greatness. And I actually, I don't know, this isn't, I haven't researched this, but I actually think what helps you be an elite performer can often get in the way of your relationships, can often get in the way of your capacity to lead. And so you see this with a lot of our military. They learn how to execute and do a job but they struggle when they come home with connecting with their kids or their spouse. I've worked with a lot of military. I think that's a very real thing. That's a challenge for them because what's required to connect with our spouse is very different than what's required to kill someone, right? Or to be at war. Like those are very different things. And I think it's the same in sports, like what's required to execute and the focus and what's needed to handle that pressure is very different than what's needed to look your spouse in the eyes and really care about how their day was. And so, and by the way, leadership and performance, we also screw up all the time. So we think the salesperson can become a great sales manager and they are just very different skill sets. And we lump them all together and just say, this person's great. So I'm actually amazed at the people who have the capacity to do all of that. And my dad, for example, I look up to because I think he was able to really be great as a performer and execute. He was able to be a great leader and he was able to be a great father and husband. And that is admirable to me. I don't know if I have that potential. I'm still working on it. But yeah, those are things that I think about quite often that we mix these things together and we just say, oh, they're great. So they'll be great at anything. I'm not buying it. And if you look at our history, whether it's the presidents of the United States or people that change the world or CEOs who are inventing things and changing our world that way, you look at their family or you look at their leadership skills or it, it doesn't always equate. And so I think like there is something there that actually goes against how we think about it. Yes. Yes. To all of the above. I think that's, I think that's excellent. So just for the audience, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of run through these, a list of these things, and then I'm actually going to transition over to the leadership side, because you have a lot of information on that as well. So basically on one hand, you have, you want to be humble in preparation. And then like you mentioned, arrogant for performance. And then in preparation for a lot of these peak performers feels like work, like they are working hard. And the performance is actually feels like play. That's where all the flow states and things like that come into. Preparation is a focus on the future. They're looking at how do I improve the future, where performance is a focus on the present, which again is a dichotomy that really stuck out to me as well. And then preparation, you have perfection, perfectionistic, basically attention to detail in preparation, and then very adaptable in performance. Analysis in preparation, and then instinct for performance, experimenting, for prep, trusting the process that you've built in all your preparation that you've done, you're uncomfortable in preparation and then very comfortable in performance, fear and fearlessness, fear for preparation, fearlessness for performance, and then selfish and selfless. So phenomenal. Read his book because he obviously goes into so much more than that. Before we get into the leadership stuff, though, I do want to talk about fear. So this is an important one. This is what keeps everybody back from whatever they want in life. Like it hinges around fear. Can you talk about how you go about approaching fear in preparation and also in performance as well? So I grew up, I'm deaf in my left ear. And so my parents were really big on instilling fear in me before I crossed the street. And most parents will say, look both ways before you cross the street. I think my parents said, look eight ways. <laughs> Keep going back and forth eight times before you cross the street. And they needed to instill that in me so that I could then be fearless as I walk across the street. And so I think we think of fear as being a bad thing. And once again, I don't really think anything is 
bad and anything is necessarily good. I think it depends on when we're using it and if we overdose or over-index on a thing. So fear is just concern or apprehension of loss. And when you study elite performers, they absolutely use fear of failure in preparation. And they leverage that to put a little more work in. This morning, I worked out my trainer. Like Part of my working out of the trainer is that I want to be able to walk my kids down the aisle at their wedding. And I, I want to have a little bit of fear that I might not if I keep eating or not exercising. Like I think that fear helps me get my shoes on and go exercise. And so I think fear can absolutely be a motivator. I think if it's the only motivator, that's where you can run into some issues and some trouble. If we're led by fear, I think that can run into some trouble. But I think like having a fear of failure and understanding fear helps us go to the doctor. It, it, it allows us to give our keys to somebody when we're at the bar and say, hey, I, I might be able to drive, but I don't want to get a DUI. I don't want to hit somebody. Like I think that fear and preparation helps us. And then fearlessness is the other side of the coin where when we are performing, we do need to let go of the concern. We need to be bold. We need to be brave. We need to be vulnerable, courageous, whatever word you want to put there and not worry about the outcome. And there comes a time where you have to say, F it, I'm going for it mm. and let's make it happen. And I think if you've done enough fear and preparation, then you've earned the right to then let go and just say, all right, I've done all the work. I've thought about everything that could go wrong. I'll give you an example. I have fear every time I come on a podcast. And so like my preparation for this is like, I go on and I, I try to listen and I try to learn about you. And like a word that I'm really hoping we talk about at some point today is loneliness. Like I think that is front and center in, in your work. And so I had some fear and like, oh, that's something I'd like to talk about with Michael. And if I didn't have the fear, then probably wouldn't go on your website. I would be like, I'm good. I'm just going to do my thing. I have no concern. I'm going to be bold and brave. If I was that in preparation, I don't think I'd, we'd have as great of a conversation. But now where we are, I need to be able to not worry about any fear that I have about how I'm sounding. Am I talking too much? Am I talking too little? Am I too loud? Am I too soft? I can't worry about that. Like it's go time. Let's be fearless. And I need to be bold and brave. And hopefully we'll talk about loneliness at some point, but that's let's do it. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And that's like how I, when I prepare for my podcast interviews, it's a very similar thing. Like I, that attention to detail, like I'll do all my research and do all of these things and have all of these questions that I might ask like two out of the 15, you know what I mean? But it's like that preparation allows me to be fearless when I'm doing the conversation because I'm like, I've done the preparation and now we're going with the flow. Beyonce has this great quote where she said, I think of Beyonce like something. You got to drop Beyonce in here, right? Okay. Yeah. Like she has this great <laughs> quote and I love Beyonce because she is really the epitome of the book because she is, her preparation is insane. Like it is incredible. But when you watch her on stage, she lets go of all that. And she is a performer. And the other cool thing about Beyonce is she's soft-spoken. She's actually seemingly very introverted. And so I think she's a good example of when you're performing, you don't have to be the same way that you are when you're at dinner with another couple. Like it can be different and that's fine. And like, we need to give ourselves permission to step into that side of ourselves. And I think she just does a wonderful job of that. But she says, I'm nervous when I'm not nervous. If I'm nervous, I know I'm going to have a great show. And I think that's the fear. Like we need to have a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of nerves to make sure that we're dotting all our I's and crossing all our T's. And if we don't have that, 
they were holding back our attention to detail and we're making we're not making the plans and the preparation we need to then let go. And I'm pretty sure when she gets on that stage, it, she lets go of those nerves and they go away because now she's home and she knows and she's going to be bold and brave. And if there's a misstep or a mishap, she's going to keep going and not worry about the loss or the fans booing or anything like that happening. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is that fear is the correlation to value, right? Like the things that you value the most, you're the most scared of losing or whatever it comes down to doing poorly in a performance or whatever that is. And so, like you said, it's situ, it depends on the situation. So that fear, it shows that you actually have a value for this and it's important and it's important enough to feel fear around it. And I, again, I'm glad you brought that up. Can you imagine if we never had that feeling? Like how boring would life be? And I think about that with all of the emotions. Like if I never was angry or sad or frustrated, and trust me, like I work on those things, especially that frustrated and, and anger part. But imagine if like you had someone close to you die and you weren't sad. Like what? That's not what I want in life. Like that's not the goal. And so I struggle with people that are like, oh, just be positive all the time. No, don't like feel <laughs> yeah. the sadness when someone passes. Oh, just be fearless. No, don't just be fearless. Like have a little bit of fear that this won't go well and sit in that for a little bit. Don't sit in it all the time. Anxiety. Like we all think of anxiety as a bad thing, but like anxiety is necessary. It's our radar. It's a signal that something might be a little bit off or that there's risk here. And maybe we need to step into the risk, but we need to be able to feel it, notice it, observe it. And then like my mentor, Neil, who I mentioned earlier, used to always say, do you have this story or does the story have you? And I love that phrase. And I've used that with most of my clients, but I've taken it to one more step where I would say like, do you have the anxiety or does the anxiety have you? Do you have sadness or does sadness have you? Do you have anger or does anger have you? And you could keep going on that list because I think there's a difference and we need to be able to acknowledge like, yes, living involves having sadness, but that doesn't mean sadness needs to have you. That's depression. You can have anger, but anger doesn't need to have you. That leads to all kinds of issues. Even like alcohol, do you have a glass of wine or does wine have you? Those are different things. And so I love that dynamic at play. And I think I've learned so much from just putting that framework into my world. Yeah, I think that's excellent. And using that as a segue, we'll get to loneliness here like you wanted. But that when you look at the research around loneliness, like loneliness and just like any of these things, when you look at emotions, when you look at fear, they're actually serving a purpose, right? So they serve a very specific purpose. It's like our pain network. When you put your hand on a stove, like it serves a very specific purpose. It's not comfortable, but it causes you to get out of that situation. Emotions are similar in terms of that, in terms of it's going that there's, a fundamental need, a lot of times that's going unmet here that we need to look at. So when you look at loneliness, they actually show acute loneliness. There's a difference between acute loneliness and chronic. And acute, when you have acute loneliness, it actually triggers you to pick up more signals from other people, the body language, because you're trying to reconnect into a social group, but it's different than all the negative effects of chronic loneliness. So with that in mind, I'd love to turn it over to you as far as what loneliness does look like from a peak performance standpoint from these peak performance or even for yourself personally? Yeah. I mean, I'd rather talk about myself. I want to, but I think it'd be more helpful for mm. our, for me, like I need help here. And mm. 
So to talk about it from another person's perspective wouldn't do justice to my own vulnerability and my own desire to get better. So yeah, I mean, the pandemic for me, loneliness has been the word that it's been the hardest part. And I understand people have died and people have had health issues and I had COVID. I still have some health issues from it. And so like, I understand there's like real big things and I'm not minimizing that people have lost jobs. We're heading toward a recession. Like there's some real shit going on. For me, I have felt disconnected. I felt like my whole life I've had great friendships and great relationships. And I've felt lonely over the last few years. And that's a new feeling for me. So hopefully it's acute. But yeah, belonging is a big deal for me. Everyone says I'm an extrovert. So I guess I'll say I'm an extrovert. The tests say I'm an extrovert. And <laughs> so I like say that begrudgingly. I just don't like that label. But yeah, I definitely crave human interaction. And I have felt lonely over the last couple of years. And that's a new feeling for me. And I've been working on it. I have a coach. We talked about this in our last meeting last week. And I've been trying to like go out there and hunt relationships and hunt mm -hmm. meaning and deep connections. I have plenty of surface networks and communities that I can be a part of. And I am, and I'm grateful for those. And they help, but I think for whatever reason, I have felt lonely. I felt disconnected in a lot of ways the last couple of years. So yeah, help me. Like, I don't know, like <laughs> what I, I, my, my plan is to like go, I realize I've probably always gone toward convenience in a lot of my relationships. I'm very fortunate. I live where I grew up. I've got amazing friends that I've known their entire life and my entire life. Like it's a very unique environment that I'm in where I've had just amazing people, high character people that I like being around, but I've found the last couple of years to be difficult to stay connected to anybody. And there's a lot of factors that go into whether or not you're able to stay connected to people with a pandemic. And so, yeah, loneliness would be the word that I would use. That's been the biggest challenge for me over the last couple of years. And so, yeah, I definitely don't have it figured out and I'm trying to improve that what's the opposite of loneliness well that's actually the interesting that's the interesting thing when you look because you love the words right that's the interesting thing you'll a lot of times you'll find this when we have these words that relate to fundamental needs that we have sometimes it's difficult to find the opposite of the word like like when you have something like pain well, what's the opposite of pain well you could say health sort of right? It's that kind of like thing with loneliness. So what's the opposite of loneliness? You could say connected, sort of, right? But a lot of times when we have these words, the opposite is just an optimal state. And it's like that fish in the water kind of thing. Like it's like when you don't have pain, you don't think about your health, really. It's kind of like what you're talking about with fear, right? Like when you don't have pain, you're not thinking about your health until you have pain, right? And then loneliness is that kind of thing. Like when you don't have loneliness, you're just doing life. Like there's not really like you could say connected, but there's not really a really strong word that correlates to the opposite of it. And I think the what word, the word that's coming up for me is belonging. And uh, I think I have belonging in my life. Like I have community. I have, I belong to tribes, so to speak. Well, here, so you're, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm going to say, so here's the thing with loneliness is it's important to realize there's actually different circles of it. And this correlates to how we 
define ourselves, right? So if I were to say, like, if you were to ask, how do you define yourself? And I'd say, like, I'm this tall, I have brown, brown hair, this color, eyes, whatever. I define myself here, right? Then we have our like my intimate definition, right? So I define myself as like, I'm a husband, I'm a spouse, whatever. I'm a father. I define it in relationship to the intimate circles. Then you have it defined as I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an executive coach, that kind of thing. I'm an American, your nationality, your race. So we have those different levels. And you can actually look at those different levels and basically go, which one? And if you just use a connection thing or a belonging thing, it's interesting to look at some of loneliness. And this is the research around it is subjective versus objective loneliness. So you can be surrounded by people in a room and feel subjectively alone. And you can be like hiking through the Sahara Desert and not feel alone at all. So the interesting thing is that has to do with the internal definition. So do I actually, some of loneliness has to do with, am I connecting internally with myself? Is there a connection? Is there a belonging? Or is there a disconnection? And then like you're looking at, you're a part of all these tribes. So you're like, I checked the box on that one. I feel like I fit in on that one. But looking at, is there a disconnect in terms of that intimate level? and basically. What, where in my past did I really feel these connections? What it's like you do with peak performance. Like, let's break it down and look at what are the components? What are the variables that made that connection amazing? And then what skills do I need to develop to reproduce that in the challenging environment that I have? It's really good. And what I got to in my coach is really focusing more internally than externally. And there's a lot there, right? Like, I think I've always been someone who people go to for deep conversations but who do I go to for deep conversations? Like I'm the one that everyone comes to when they want help with something, but who, who do I go to? And so we sort of shine the light back on me, which is really healthy, I think, and helpful. And rather than change people in my network or my community, like how can I maybe change some of parts of me? And like, I love what you said is like, if I'm in a room and I feel lonely, like, all right, well, what's going on for me? And to your point, like that's why I struggle with the word extroverted because I get tremendous energy from nature and being alone as well. And so I know that feeling of not feeling lonely when you're in the Sahara Desert, so to speak. So I, I, I've, you've got me sort of wondering for myself, like, what is my relationship with loneliness? When I feel lonely, what do I want to do in those situations? Do I want to just sit in it? Do I want to be okay with it? Do I want to dance with it? Like. I, and I'm not sure. I think I need to chew on that a little bit more. And there's a signal there that I need to just pay attention to and notice and observe and not let it run me. And not. And I think the biggest thing is not let it create a story about others because I don't think it's fair to them and they're just doing the best they can. And when I'm in that room and I feel like, oh, I'm not connected to those people, it's like, well, that's me. It's not them. And there's, I can have grace for myself. Or I can say, all right, like, let's go have a conversation with someone and try to find out something about them or give them the space to ask me some questions. I think that's the other piece. I sometimes don't give people the opportunity mm. to really go and ask me questions. And then there's the other piece, which is like, also, who do I want to surround myself with? And who are the people that I want? I said, like, hunt, like, go hunt yeah. people that love to ask you questions and love to help you and 
give them the opportunity to do that. So those are things that I'm definitely thinking about working on. And yeah, but this conversation, the timing of it couldn't be better because it's absolutely a thing that I'm thinking about. Well, first off, I just really appreciate your willingness to to share. That's huge. And that's obviously where everything with it, where everything starts with. And some things to think about with aloneness, when you look at just the human needs that we have, these fundamental human needs, a lot of times we have some sort of need for safety, or you can call it certainty or comfort. Then we have needs for variety and we have needs for spontaneity and needs for change. Then we have needs for like significance to actually feel like we matter. And then the connection piece, the love piece, both for ourselves and for other people. So an interesting question to look at is like, what needs am I trying to basically, like you said, what's the signpost? What needs am I trying to get met with this? Is it actually, I just feel super uncertain in life right now. And so this is a trigger for that, or actually life just looks exactly the same and I need more variety, right? There was a time in the pandemic where So I would say it doesn't look very uncertain, which is fine. And I actually, I create uncertainty because I create stuff, that piece. (laughs) The But then the spontaneity, there was definitely a time during the pandemic where my wife and I are like, we just need to do something different. We went and got a hotel room in Washington, D.C. And then I'll never forget, like we were just together and we just went for a walk through the city and we're just walking because we hadn't seen anything. We'd seen the same stuff over and over again and we were craving it. I think we've done a better job. We've traveled more and, and had this spontaneity. It's the last piece that you mentioned, though, the love and the connection. And like the there's it's that it's a deep like piece that I've probably been questioning. And it really has to do with like friendships and relationships in that sense. And yeah, it's a me thing. It's I, I've talked about it for a while now. I need. I've talked about enough. It's like, I need to take better action with it. And maybe it's connected to the other pieces too. It's like, Hey, maybe there's uncertainty there. Maybe there's spontaneity that needs to be brought up. Like tomorrow night, I'm doing something way more spontaneous with some friends and I'm excited about that. I really am. So that was really helpful. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I usually don't just turn this to like me to be talking, but again, I really appreciate you sharing. And I would say too, you are doing the work, right? You have a coach. And you're already doing the work. You're already taking the steps and you already have a ton of awareness around the things that potentially trigger it and in what environments and what's contributing to it. So that's already fantastic. The other interesting kind of exercise that you can do with any emotion in general is you can ask it, what is the positive intent behind this? And A lot of times for loneliness, it is a connection kind of thing. But then you can follow up those questions with going, if I was completely and totally connected with other people, what would be even more important than that? And it's interesting because it's totally different for different people. But sometimes from that spot, then it might be, if I was completely and totally connected with other people, then I would be taking that connection or taking what I have from that and giving to other people or making an impact. And then you can follow it up with that question again. Like if I was completely and totally giving from that spot, what would be even more important than that? And depending on your background, it might get into religion, spirituality, connection, or dissolution of yourself. You can, for a very simple question, use that as a starting point and have it ratchet up to a lot higher levels 
of intent. And then you can bring those higher levels of intent down, back, back down those different levels and bring the feeling into the feeling of loneliness and actually see how does that change? If I'm actually looking at what is the highest intent that I have behind this, how does that, if I bring that into this moment, how does that change the feeling of loneliness? Yeah. I think it's a really good exercise. And once again, just what's coming up, what's the relationship like? You know, it's interesting. Like I've taken the approach of being a coach and like, uh, I don't have everything figured out. Uh, I definitely don't. I think sometimes I present to the people in my circle that I do. And I think that is limiting the connection. And I need to genuinely appreciate and be curious about ways in which they might help me be better rather than sometimes just assuming that I know better. And I think that's a growth edge for me that I'm working on. Yeah. I love that. I love, again, I love the awareness that you have around it and I love that you're working on it. And it's a similar thing for me, right? A lot of times the areas that we have strengths or tools around is because we'd have to figure out these tools for ourselves. So the areas of loneliness, like tons, same kind of thing with the pandemic or in the international scene, when you have the revolving door of like your friends just leaving, I get something that is a challenge and a struggle for me as well. Like, how do you navigate through this when you just have these very real variables that reduce the length of the friendships and stuff that you have. And so you learn these tools and stuff for it, but it's, I had a guest on the podcast and they talk about sometimes we bookmark mental health. Like I struggled with this, which really is an accurate representation. Like we're just living and it's it ebbs and flows. It's situation. It depends on the situation, but we can learn things. We can grow through it, but doesn't necessarily mean like I wrapped it up with a bow and then we sorted that out in the past. So I think that's important to remember as well. For sure. Cool. Well, again, thank you so much for your honesty and stuff around this. And I know we're coming to the end of the time here. You have a tremendous, I mean, your book, Shift Your Mind, is amazing. And your work that you do is amazing. Where can people go to connect with the elite level of coaching and stuff that they do if they're interested or just follow you and gain knowledge and information? Yeah, it's interesting. Shift Your Mind was like a culmination of a decade in this sports psychology world. And my business has changed. So I spend more time now with executives than I do athletes. A lot of the executives were former athletes or connected to sports, but not all of them. And we have a company called Strong Skills. So you can go to strongskills.co, check us out. And we are coaches and facilitators. And the name of the company is really about changing how the world thinks about soft skills. I come from a sports background. So if you say someone is soft in sports, they usually get cut or traded or released from the team. And so I've always just thought that soft devalues what those skills really are. And skills like creating curiosity or leadership or teamwork or emotional intelligence. And so we do workshops. We do them mostly remotely and we teach organizations how to be better at these skills. And then we also do one-on-one coaching. So we believe in both. We believe in group experiences and we believe in one-on-one coaching. So there's some magnificent coaches and facilitators that are part of the team. And there on our website, you'll find my podcast, which is called Intentional Performers. You'll see the book, which is Shift Your Mind, which you mentioned. You can sign up for my newsletter, which is called Brian's Message of the Week. So everything you need should be there on social. The two places I like to play are Twitter and LinkedIn, at Brian Levinson. So 
other than that, Michael, this has been really fun, really helpful for me. Thanks for the free session. And <laughs> just grateful that our paths crossed. Grateful for Mark Palmeropoulos for connecting us and the fear ever back in the States and in DC. Hopefully we can meet in person sometime. Yeah, that'd be amazing. I really appreciate your time. And again, your insight of years and years of refining the work with elite performers and then what the work that you do with the executive coaching as well. We didn't even get into the framework, but looking at starting with a foundation, then working at, from internally, then externally to leadership is just excellent. So thank you so much for taking your time. I appreciate having you as a guest. Thanks, Michael.